I've been telling y'all over the last few weeks about the uh, Tennessee Baptist Children's Home and the folks going to come and be with us. Um, they're here this morning, Mr. Uh, Greg McCoy. And the other lady's name was Miss Alicia, who is actually who done our home study when we were going through the process of adopting uh, Montana. Miss Alicia's father passed away this past week, and she's not able to be here with us this morning. So in her stead is another lady with a similar name that I keep wanting to call Alicia as well, and it's not Alicia at all. It is Alisa, Alyssa, Alyssa. Now, y'all can see where the confusion came from on that one, right? Alicia, Alyssa. Y'all can see my struggle. It's real. So instead of Miss Alicia this morning, we have Miss Alisa. No, not Alisa. <laughs> we got to come up with a name, brother. <laughs> Alyssa. Alyssa. It's not that hard. It's not. So, our services this morning will look something like this. We're going to watch a video that they've brought with them or, or sent to us. Um, and then Miss um, Alyssa is going to come up and, and speak. And then she's going to turn things over to Mr. Greg. And then um, he'll be taking us to the end of our service. So, if you would, give your undivided attention to them. And we'll start with the video. You can go ahead, Nate. There is a tendency when you're, you're serving in a Christian organization that relies upon the gifts of individuals, business, churches, whatever, to fund it because you're not federally funded. You don't have money coming in from anybody other than those that I mentioned. You have a tendency to try to find ways to get the money and to get people interested and it's very easy to try to sort of get away from our roots in order to get people interested. And I think it should be just the opposite, that we jump dead center in the fact that God called us to do this. This is our responsibility according to the Word of God. And that we're gonna do that unashamedly flying the banner that we're believers, we're Christians, that are trying to fulfill what God called us to do. What we do for kids is uh, we intervene at a critical moment in their lives. Hopefully to intersect them in a difficult spot and help them transition to something much better. My mom wasn't taking good care of me. Because I'm, I'm living at a place where people take care of me. Mm, food and clothes and a bed to sleep in. I do feel loved here. And I see what my mom and dad should have done with us when we were younger. There's food to eat, clothes on our bodies, shoes on our feet. In a warm house, sleep in a, in a warm bed, sleeping in a house, staying. This place makes me feel happy, joyful. I could not picture my life without them at all. 
because people take care of me here and people didn't take care of me there. They've done a lot of stuff for me. They've taken care of me. They've I don't think I deserve it either. Because sometimes I act bad. When I first came here, I, I was not good. Um, I got in trouble at school when I came here and I got suspended for a day. At school I used to get in trouble a lot. Three years ago I didn't really care that much. Well before I was lived here, I wasn't a Christian, I didn't know anything about Jesus. I wanted my life to change. I am guilty. I did a lot of bad and mean stuff to people. Ashamed of what I've done, what I've become. I used to disrespect my grandparents all the time and treat them wrong and do everything I could to get on their bad side. I did not lift them up. All because of the fact that my actual parents, my biological ones, they walked out on me and I treated the wrong people for the wrong reason. I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, if you want to say that. I didn't always think that there were rules everywhere. You looked at me the wrong way and we'd fight. I came here thinking, I'm gonna get in here and I'm gonna get out. My mom's gonna come get me out. I really didn't listen. I didn't care about what people told me. I just said, well, who cares? It's my life, I can do whatever I want. The, the true measurement is when that child receives Christ. That's something you can see. That's something you can look at and go, now we got it. That used to love me, but in your eyes there's only grace now. I feel like they gave me the power to choose good. I feel like um, that they were the ones that taught me that doing good is not weak. And so I feel like they gave me choices. They gave me the choice to either get kicked out of here and go to juvie, or be good and follow Christ. And I chose the second one. We look at scripture and we know that there's some that spread the seed and some that actually cultivate the property and some that actually then get the harvest. And to be able to be one of those that participate in the harvest, because we very easily could be the ones just planting the seed and that, that child receives Christ years down the road. But to be able to witness that child coming to know Christ and, and for the child to say, I don't know that I ever would have known Christ if it not been for the opportunity to be here. And then to follow through in baptism and describe the meaning of that in his own life. It doesn't get any better than that. So I said, okay, 
And I said the prayer, I said, I surrender all things onto you, Lord. I don't want anything to do with my life. I want you to control my life. I mean, how, how can you not rejoice when you see children come to know Christ? How can that not be the centerpiece of everything that we do? It gives me joy and hope that I have a future, knowing that I can go and share my testimony to anybody and help them know that there is a way to change and that you can change from being a really bad person to going and helping people because I know that when I was little I always knew that there was a spirit telling me something and I knew that if I was doing something wrong that it I knew that it was wrong I never knew that he could be part of my life I never knew that he was always gonna be there for me I thought he was just there for the good people that would always do good things but I came here and I saw some people who were coming out of all kinds of things. Some people were going through the things that I was going through. And it showed me that I can grow up to be like that because Jesus knows me now. And he's always going to work for me. children were gotten out of bed this morning and fed breakfast and taken to church um, whether they wanted to go or not. We, we, want, them, we want them to want to, uh, but uh, that's what our house parents did on our residential campuses across the state this morning. Just so you know some of this stuff, uh, you have five residential campuses, and I say you have it because Tennessee Baptist Children's Homes is owned and operated by the churches of the Tennessee Baptist Convention. And so when you support the cooperative program, when you take a vacation Bible school offering and send it to us, when you take a Mother's Day offering and send it to us, when you give gifts to children at Christmas time, all of that helps us take care of kids who come to us from very, very difficult places. And so you have a campus in Brentwood. That would be the closest one to you. Um, people often ask me, why do you have a campus in Brentwood? Man, how would you all afford that property? Well, we predate Brentwood. Uh, we were there in 1911. Uh, we sold property so they could build a few houses, and houses did they build. Um, so that's why we're in Brentwood. You have a campus in Chattanooga. You have a campus in Memphis. 
You have a campus in uh, Millington outside of Memphis. The ranch pictures of the horses in the dirty green pond where I baptized Vianney. It was as green as it looked. Uh, that's why I had a robe and waders on underneath there. Um, we take care of 24 teenage boys on 250-acre working cattle ranch. Uh, you also have a campus over in Oakdale, Tennessee. If you're ever traveling 40 east going toward Knoxville, before you go off of the Cumberland Plateau, there's an exit called Airport Road. It's in Morgan County. Take Airport Road, turn left, go eight and a half miles in the middle of nowhere, and we have a campus there taking care of girls. And so all those campuses right now, we're caring for about 100 children uh, in our care. Last Sunday morning in Memphis, Tennessee, a young lady in our care by the name of Marissa prayed to receive Christ at church. Uh, so we rejoice when children come to know Jesus because we are unashamedly Christ-centered in our ministry. We want kids to know that we can change their uh, life temporarily, but He can change their life eternally. And so we intentionally point kids to Jesus. That's why we don't take that big pile of government money that's available. We don't take it because we don't want our hands tied in any way telling us how we can minister the love of Jesus Christ to children and families. And so we're dependent on people that care about what we do and folks like you. And so Marissa, <laughs> he's got me. Marissa's the kid who got saved. Alyssa and I, Alyssa and I are here to say thank you today. Um, and yes, thank you for pray for Alicia. Uh, she lost her dad this week. He was buried on Friday. So I told her to stay with family and, and uh, Alyssa was kind enough to meet me down here today. So uh, it's a pleasure for us to be with you. And I'm going to introduce her. She knows, uh, she's a foster care caseworker uh, and knows our foster care system. She's going to share some things with you. And if you have questions after the service and specific questions about fostering or how that works, she'll be glad to talk to you. So, Alyssa, we also have an Elizabeth. Uh, uh, Alyssa, come and share with us. Thank you. Okay, can you all hear me? All right. I found out I was doing this last night, so bear with me. <laughs> um, Sorry, our names are so confusing. I think the Lord has a sense of humor bringing the three of us together, Alicia, Alyssa, and Elizabeth. So you can call me whatever. It's fine. I'll just roll with it. Um, <laughs> like Greg said, I am a foster care caseworker for um, Tennessee Baptist Children's Homes. I've been with the Children's Homes since January 4th of last year. So am I going in and out? It, will it help to move up to the platform? Oh, sorry about that. Um, all right, so I have been with the Children's Home since January 4th of last year. Um, just a little bit about myself. I um, worked in adoption before coming to the Tennessee Baptist Children's Home, um, mostly international adoption. I wrote home studies and did post-adoption um, paperwork and case management when uh, families came home with their children from other countries. Um, did that for a couple years. Before that, I worked in Alabama, um, partnering with the state down there and working with birth families who had had their children removed from, um, from their homes. And we were working toward reunification. So I was in their homes multiple times a week talking about basic living skills, um, uh, addiction recovery, all that stuff, um, to help them be able to get their kids back home and be successful. 
Um, and before that, I interned with the state in Arkansas during college, um, working in the investigations unit. So I went out and investigated um, child abuse reports, sometimes had to do some removals. Um, so I've seen a few different sides of the child welfare system in a few different states. <laughs> um, so that's a little bit about my experience. And I have to say, I love what I do at Tennessee Baptist Children's Homes. It is my favorite part of um, all the things that I've done in the child welfare system. Um, what I do as a caseworker is I help teach the PATH trainings. It's the Parents as Tender Healers trainings that the state requires for every foster parent. Um, it's the first step in the process as a foster parent. It's a seven-week training and one night a week uh, for seven weeks. So it's a little bit of a commitment. Um, I love doing that. It's so much fun to get to know families that way and talk about uh, what you need to know going into the system. Um, after that, we do a home study. What that concludes uh, or includes is um, coming out to your home, doing interviews, and talking to your children, talking about things you learned in the class, any questions you have, all of the background information that you need for the home study, and then writing that up. Um, after a home study is completed, we do case management. So when you get referrals, when you get a placement, we are the ones that come out with DCS to um, check on the kids, check on y'all, see how you're doing, and um, go to court with you, all that kind of stuff. So just a little bit about our partnership with DCS. We have a contract with them that allows us to take in kids that are in state custody. So um, how that works is they send us referrals for different children with different needs. Um, we screen those, look through them, see if it can match what our families can take. Um, we only take level one kids. There's levels one through four and um, in placing kids in the system. Level one is the least amount of needs and behaviors that you're gonna see. That's about the same that DCS places as well. Levels two, three, and four would be more significant needs and behaviors. Um, the higher levels are usually like residential programs, um, group homes, that kind of thing. So we only place level one kids. Um, we screen those referrals. When we have a match for a family, which we really get to know our families really well through both the PATH classes and the home study process, so we can usually tell pretty quickly, is this kid gonna do well in this family? And we will call people, we will send out emails, say this is what we have, can anybody take them? And when a family says yes, we send in their home study and we send it to DCS and they look over home studies as well. Usually they have a few that they're reviewing and um, if they decide to take one of ours, they let us know and we schedule a time and a day and we go out to those homes, <coughs> excuse me, we go out to your home and meet with the DCS worker um, and you together and just go over what the children um, need, kind of what their background is, what visitation might look like with birth families, and um, start the process from there. So we would be coming to your home a minimum of two times a month 
um, DCS will be doing the same. So you have a lot of extra support. Um, we, we are kind of a liaison sometimes too for DCS. Um, we can answer any questions that you have, try to help with communication uh, with the team, the child and family team, um, and just really, really enjoy that as well. Like I said, we would go to court with you and keep updated on what's going on in the case. Um, and just, again, just really be an extra support for um, both you as a family and DCS. Um, we really encourage, oh, let me go back to um, our partnership. So we can place level one kids. Uh, we also place in the age range, as our contract states, zero to 12. Uh, the greatest need that we're seeing right now is families that can take sibling groups of three or more. Um, we get a lot of referrals for sibling groups of three or more in all age ranges, <laughs> um, but mostly older from like five to 11. That's what I usually see the most. Um, trying to think what else, sorry. <laughs> um, we, let's see, we, uh, I'm so sorry, I'm blanking right now. <laughs> My notes are down there. Um, let's see, we also really encourage families to work toward reunification with the birth family. So that's the ultimate goal of foster care is reunification, if at all possible. Um, and I have had some families do an awesome, awesome job of that. I've got five kids on my caseload right now, ranging from two to 17. Um, like I said, our contract says we can place zero to 12. Occasionally, DCS will do a waiver for us, and we can place older children. So I had a family that um, really had a heart for teenagers, teenage girls in particular. And while we were going through their home study, we got a referral for a 17-year-old girl, and um, they were almost complete with the home study. So I told them a little bit about her, and they were all for it. And she has done amazing with this family. Like, they've just been so great for her. Um, they're actually moving toward adoption and hoping to adopt her next month, which is really exciting. Um, some of my other ones that have worked really well with their birth family are going home this week, actually, <laughs> two little ones. And the foster family has done an awesome job working with the birth mom and the grandparents of these kiddos. Um, the first day that we met the birth mom and the grandparents, they said, hey, we just want you to know we're here to help you and we're here to take care of your kids until you can get them back. We believe in you. We will do anything we can to help support you. And we just, you know, really want you to be successful and we want them to come home. And she latched onto that. It, um, it has just been an awesome partnership between them and the birth family. And uh, um, so she's done really well with calling them when they're having visits and saying, hey, um, this is something I'm experiencing right now. I don't really know what to do. What would you do? And so they have that open communication and that open partnership. And she is getting them home this week which is so exciting. Um, and she even asked my foster parents to be the guardians for her kids in case anything were to happen to her in the future because they have built such an awesome relationship. Um, That's great. Am I leaving anything out? You're good. Okay. <laughs> 
So um, if you have any questions, like Greg said, you can come ask us at the end of service. And thank you all so much for having us. Thank you, Alyssa. <clears throat> Some exciting news out of our foster care program, too, is this past Monday, four children were adopted, uh, two sets of two uh, were adopted and now have forever families. Um, so if they can't go home, as Alyssa said, our goal is reunification with their birth family. If that's not possible, then uh, we want those kids to have a permanent home. And so when we have a foster family that adopts, it removes them probably from being a foster family because we can only place five kids in a home. So that's the challenge when there's sibling groups of three or four that we're getting calls for. Uh, we First of all, got to have that many beds in your home. Uh, and we find a lot of folks that our, that our team uh, recruits that uh, wants one or two and wants babies. Well, you're, you're going to be a long time before you get a kid if you're going to narrow it down that much. But if you have the space in your home, um, then we can help you out filling that up. If you'd rather do residential care instead of foster care, in other words, if you'd like to be one of our house parents, then what that looks like is that uh, you would go through this interview process and we'd know what color underwear you wear on Thursday and what you have for breakfast on Monday morning. Uh, that's what a home study kind of is, isn't it, guys? Uh, we want everything about you, whether you want us to or not. Um, so when you get through that, you can come be a house parent, live on one of our campuses. You can bring two of your own children. If you have more than two, pick the ones you really don't want anyway. And uh, uh, come and live on our campus. And we'll give you eight more children. So on our residential campuses, house parents care for up to ten kids, two of them being their own, and eight more. Uh, and those eight that come are there not because they won a prize. Uh, they're there because they've come from a hard place, and so they have issues. And so uh, a house of 12 people uh, can sometimes be a little chaotic. So when I said to you that they got up and made it to church this morning, that's an undertaking uh, every Sunday. You know, I remember when I was, I was a pastor for 25 years before I came to the children's home just a little over two years ago now. And uh, on those Sunday mornings, I went early because my wife just had to get two kids ready. And I'm like, I'm not even going to be here in the madhouse. I'm going, oh, honey, I got to go. I got to pray over this message and pray over there and let her worry about what clothes we're going to have to change before we go to church kind of stuff. Uh, but anyway, uh, again, we are grateful for the opportunity to be with you guys this morning and share a little bit about what's going on at the children's homes. And uh, it's especially nice for me to meet Nick and Amanda and Montana uh, as I know that Alicia worked with you guys, and uh, we love success stories. We love them. We feast on them. Uh, we do have some that are not always positive. You know, we have some kids we can't help. Uh, we have some kids that decide they're, they're done. They're done trying. Uh, they try to run away. In fact, they do more than try. They're, they do for a little while. We find them typically. I've not known us not to find them. Um, over in Oakdale, though, out there in the middle of nowhere, when those girls decide to take off, there's nothing but woods. We say, please don't run away. Just come and tell us you can't take it anymore. Uh, but don't just take off through the woods. We really start to worry about them then. But we typically uh, and have successfully, with the authorities' help, located all of our kids. Uh, but there's some that, that are just heartbreaking. Um, but we know that God wants us to give it a good go at any child we have the opportunity to serve. Why? Because he's a good, good father. And he says that he will be a father to the fatherless. 
And we believe that about him. And so as I was praying about my own ministry and my own transition out of the pastorate into the children's home, uh, part of that, Brother Nick, was uh, am I being true to my calling? You know, the Lord had called me to preach. And in my mind, that was being a pastor that I had been for 25 years in two different churches. I, I used to pastor up in Cullioca. Uh, you guys know where Cullioca is. Most people in Tennessee don't know where it's at. Um, I pastored Friendship Baptist Church in Cullioca for eight and a half years and then moved to Portland where I pastored for 16 and a half years. Things were going well there. We were, we were seeing the Lord do some cool things. Even in this foster care world, the Lord had begun to transition our, the culture of our church's thinking about caring for those kids that's in the system that need help. Um, I served on the board of trustees at the children's home for a dozen years just as a pastor. I love our ministry. And so when they... When Dr. Millsaps announced his retirement and they came knocking on my door, it kind of sent me into a kind of a, a spiritual frenzy of fervent prayer and thinking, Lord, I don't know about that, but sensing that he might be doing something. So I began to do a study of scripture and, and here's some things I found that, that uh, coincide with what um, God gave me confirmation that this might be the right step. As I read the words of God and I see what he thinks about children who are in crisis. He says things like, I will defend their cause. I will be their helper. I will incline my ear to them. I will give them food and clothing. I will secure justice on their behalf. I will deliver them. He says, I will lift them up. He said, I will uphold their cause. I will give the lonely a home. I will not forget them. I will rescue them. I will extend mercy. I will be their father. I will vindicate them. All those things God says he will do for people who are down and out and specifically orphans and widows and strangers and he says I will give them compassion I will give them compassion and that's what I wanted to think about with you a few minutes today as we as we consider God's word regarding compassion um, it's why we do what we do at the children's homes it's why you do much of what you do as a ministry here at Wales Baptist Church and um Let's, let's first of all begin by just defining the word compassion. Compassion is deep sympathy and sorrow accompanied by the desire to alleviate the suffering. So you got to get the whole definition. It's not just deep sympathy and sorrow. If we stop there, deep sympathy and sorrow would be that I feel sorry for someone. That I, I, you, It might be that we say, man, I hate this has happened to you. But we have no intention of making anything different for them. It might be that I'll, sometimes the words we Christians use is I'll pray for you and then we forget about that later and we really never pray for them. We just don't know what else to say to them at the time. But when we know that deep sympathy and sorrow is accompanied by the desire to alleviate the suffering, in other words, it's accompanied by I will be willing to do something to help you. Then we have moved into the realm of compassion. And every time you see the word compassion in the scripture, and I'm going to walk through four of those places with you in the ministry of Jesus. Every time we see that Jesus was moved with compassion, it resulted in some kind of action on his behalf to alleviate the suffering. And I believe that if God is a God of compassion and our Savior is a Savior of compassion, then we who are called his people ought to be people of compassion. And I'll confess to you, sometimes I'm good at this and sometimes I'm not. 
Uh, a lot of times I, I catch it later that I missed the opportunity to be the compassion of Christ to someone. And let's begin today in Matthew chapter 14. Here's what I'm going to do if it's all right with you. I want to take you to four passages of Scripture. We'll begin in Matthew 14. And I anticipate that there's at least a couple of different kinds of listeners here today. Uh, you guys who are involved in Wales Baptist Church and who are, who are involved in uh, teaching your children at home uh, where you're giving them uh, serious Christian education. My wife homeschooled my son from third through eighth grade. Uh, so we know a little bit about that world of, of homeschooling and how beneficial that can be. Um, so I anticipate that you probably know the stories in Scripture, especially in the Gospels, as you read the stories of Jesus. And just maybe, though, some of you are here and you might be new to the faith. Uh, you, you've seen a church that's active in ministry. You're, you've seen a church that's friendly to you when you walk in the door. I walked in the door this morning and I overheard a Sunday school teacher saying to her children that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross so that we might be saved from our sins. Uh, and so I'm like, man, they're sharing the gospel in Sunday school. That's great Sunday school stuff. Um, so the things I hear about you and getting to sit down and talk with Nick just a few minutes today, this is a place where certainly if I lived in Pulaski, I'd want to say, Lord, is this where you want me to plug in? Maybe that's who you are. Maybe you're just new to this thing called church and uh, to these people called Christians. So where I'm, what I'm going to do is share a little bit about what's going on in the chapter and then we're going to read one verse out of each four sections, okay? So that we can just kind of zone in on what we're thinking about concerning compassion today. So in Matthew chapter 14, John the Baptist, John the Baptist has just been beheaded. He had been killed. He'd been arrested, put in prison, a little trickery from people that didn't like him. Next thing you know, literally he had lost his head. Now, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus, the Messiah. John the Baptist, they were kin. They were like second cousins or, or so. And uh, Jesus loved John the Baptist. It was John the Baptist who Jesus said asked to, be, to baptize him in the Jordan River. And so they have this ministry in common. John the Baptist is kind of the wild man living out in the wilderness and eating grasshoppers and, and uh, honey and, and preaching repentance um, saying the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and be ready for that. Well, Jesus loved John the Baptist, and John the Baptist had died. So what do you do when a good friend dies? Well, well, you grieve. You, you get off by yourself a little bit. And so Jesus had planned that I'm going to spend a little time alone. So the scripture tells us in Matthew 14 that Jesus got in a boat and was going to the other side of the sea. He wanted to, to pray, wanted to think, wanted to just get his composure, wanted to talk with the Father. Well, because he had already started teaching and had been extremely interesting in what he was saying, people were listening to him. Uh, well, people by the literally thousands went across, went to the other side of the lake by the way of the shore. And when Jesus gets to the other side of the lake, there's people. There's all kinds of people. And he wanted to be alone, but there's people. And here's what the scripture says in verse 14 of Matthew 14 about that incident. And Jesus went out, he, when he went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with, what's the word? Compassion for them and healed their sick. Here's what compassion will do. Compassion will change your plans 
Compassion will change your schedule. Compassion will keep you from getting your to-do list for the day done because it redirects your attention and redirects your planning. I was walking in the Walmart in Millington, Tennessee because I was on our ranch with my church family on a mission trip. We go down there and we, we paint fences and build fences and um, we were going to put up some goat fence because we had a section of that ranch that we needed the goats to chew down. And so I decided I, I needed a shoulder workout that day. And so I would take some of my boys and some of the ranch boys and we would drive the post in the ground. And so you get the big heavy post driver. Is that what you call it, a post driver? Uh, and you put it on that metal post and ding, 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 you drive that thing in. So my plan was I'm going to get it started in the right place and let these boys take it home. But I figured it's still going to be a good shoulder workout. And by the end of that, my ears would be ringing with this ding, ding. So I went to Walmart to buy earplugs for my team. You know, I'm going to take care of my boys. I'm going to take care of myself. We're going to have a good time. We only had about 100 of those things to drive in the ground. And so I'm going in Walmart at 6.45 in the morning. There are nobody around. I mean, just, you know, that's the best time to go grocery shopping, ladies, is 6.45 a.m. And so I'm walking in Walmart, and there's an old guy sitting down outside the store against the wall. And he says, hey, man, can you help me? And I said, I'm sorry, sir, I can't do anything for you today. And I just blitzed on in, and I didn't get inside the door. And the Lord said, who are you down here on a mission trip? But I had to get earplugs. I'm on a mission. And so immediately I thought, man, alive. Because first of all, I lied to him. I could have done something for him. I could have encouraged him. I could have given him some money. I had some money in my pocket. I had church money in my pocket that's easy to give away on a mission trip, you know. I could have done something for him. So I found a honey bun, the breakfast of champions, and I found some orange juice, and I got a banana, and I grabbed earplugs. And all of that took about seven minutes. I mean, there's nobody there. I'm blitzing. I'm not waiting at the checkout, and I'm going back out there, and I'm going to give this guy the honey bun, the orange juice, and the banana, and he is not there. I drive around the stinking store trying to find him. I drive, I look all over that parking lot and he is gone. And I missed it. I, I missed it. The opportunity to show compassion in Jesus' name, I missed it. I don't know who he was. I'll probably never see him again. If he was an angel put there by the Lord testing me, I failed. But I missed it. A month later, I'm back at the same Walmart out at the gas pumps. And it's just a sign on my head. Need help? Ask me. And I'm just putting gas in my car. And a lady pulls up and her car's like, man, it's running rough. It's boy, just barely keeping running. And I'm like, man, alive, you know. And, she's, and I know she's about to ask me for something. So there's a baby in the back seat and a little car seat and another lady in the car. Sir, can you? Yes, she, she, I started digging it out before she even got it out. Yes, I can. She, can you help me? I said, yes, I can. And I just gave her a $20 bill. Oh, thank you so much. I said, hey, Lord bless you. Take care of that baby back there. I just knew that I'm not going to fail twice in the same parking lot. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, because we're aware of it, we get it right. And sometimes we're just in a hurry. We've just got an agenda and people are hurting around us and 
Until we've been moved with compassion, we just say, man, I feel sorry for that guy, but I'm not moved with compassion because I did nothing to help him. Jesus changed what he was going to do that day. Wanting to be by himself, he begins to heal their sick and eventually feeds 4,000 of them supper because they needed him and he was moved by compassion. Let's look at another verse in Matthew chapter 20. I've made it easy for you. All you got to do is flip to the right. You don't have to be looking for things that you might not be able to find. But in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is leaving Jericho. And he's, he's full-blown full in ministry by now. And um, a couple of blind men are sitting by the road. And they're crying out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Well, the disciples, man, they've kicked into ministry mode. They're kicked into protection mode. Jesus is on a mission, and we're, gonna hear, we're here to help him. We're here to protect him. We're here to keep him focused. They're saying, guys, don't, don't yell out like that. You know, there's appropriate times to yell out, and there's times you just need to let it go. They say, guys, hold it down. Well, that made them cry out all the more. Lord, Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus heard them, and he asked them, what would you have me do for you? And they said, Lord, we just want to be able to see. We want to be able to see. And in verse 34 of Matthew 20, the scripture says, So Jesus had what? Compassion and touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. Jesus didn't heal every blind person in the world that he walked by, but he was moved with compassion where these guys, and he healed their eyes. Let's look at Mark chapter 1. Going to the right. Mark's the next book in the Gospels. Mark chapter 1. Jesus is preaching. He's healing blind people. He's casting out demons. He's helped the lame to walk. He's done all kinds of stuff. And knowing that, there's a guy that comes and falls on his knees in the middle of the road. And he is a leper. Now kids, a leper is not a leopard. When I was a kid, and we used to sing the hymn that talks about God being able to change the leopard's spots, I thought, well, I don't know why he won't do that. He just won't put them on there. But <laughs> I guess if he wants to change the, change the leopard's spots, he can change the leopard's spots. Well, it's a leper. We don't use that word much today, but it's, it's a guy with a disease, a very contagious disease, a physically debilitating disease. Eventually, your, your fingers would, would even fall off because of this disease that affects your blood flow. And it's so contagious that they would move you out of your house and move you to a colony of lepers. That's where you had to live. When you're walking around on the street, if there was someone coming close to you, you would have to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that you wouldn't accidentally brush up beside someone because leprosy was so contagious it could jump onto them very easily. It was a horrendous thing to try to live with. And this leper has fallen on his knees in front of Jesus and says, Lord, if you're willing... You can make me clean. If you're willing, you can make me clean. And here's what happened in Mark chapter 1, verse 41. Jesus moved with what? Compassion. Stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I'm willing, be cleansed. Folks, listen. What do you never do to a leper? You never touch him. 
You never touch. They might be family, and you don't touch them. You don't hug them. How long had it been since this man had felt the warmth of another human being's touch? I don't know. But anybody knows you don't touch a leper. But when you move with compassion, you minister to people that might get you dirty or might get you sick or might cost you to risk your life when you move with compassion. And that's why today we have missionaries all over the world, all over the globe, putting their life on the line to try to share the message of Jesus with all culture people, all cultures, and some of them are risking their very lives to do it. And that's why we will reach out and care for people that don't look like we look, that don't smell like we smell. I remember being in northern Alabama after a tornado went through there just a few years ago. We were in Eider, Alabama, doing some relief work up on the mountain. One of our church's secretary's family was from there, so we went to help her mother's church. And we were, this, these folks had had a trailer that they lived in. They had a son who was um, physically challenged, and they were dirt poor, dirt poor. People across the street had a brick home, and they invited this poor couple and their son to come and stay in their home until the tornado went through. They refused to go. The brick house was blown away. Literally, foundation, all that was left. And this trailer had just been moved off of its foundation a little bit. So we're moving their stuff out of their trailer because they're getting a new trailer moved in there. And so their old trailer was going to be their new storage unit. And we decided you might be a redneck if your old trailer is now your new storage unit. <laughs> but as we're carrying things out of there, and I leaned over the refrigerator to let my, one of my buddies grab the other end, roaches went everywhere, all over, little bitty ones, big ones. Uh, they were just everywhere. I had gloves on. I told the guy that was with me, you might want to put gloves on because I'd already seen the kitchen sink and bugs are everywhere. They're just crawling everywhere. That gives me the heebie-jeebies, you know, at times. And uh, so I lean that thing over and roaches come falling out on him. And I said, man, you can't act like that in front of these people. You know, we, we get outside and he has his hands on his knees. He's about to throw up. I said, man, you can't do that here. I said, go around the corner. There's, the family's right here. You can't act like that around here. I'm getting sick. I'm getting sick, you know. But... <laughs> Com compassion will make you do stuff like that, you know? And that's God's people are called to minister to the least of these. And so when you're thinking about folks who have not been as blessed as, as we have and what you can do for them, and it doesn't matter why they're in the situation they're in. You know, the, the Lord never said to find out why they're hungry before you feed them. He doesn't say that. You, they were hung, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a prisoner you come and visited me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And you've done it unto me, you've done it unto him. He doesn't say find out why they're in such a mess they are. Now I'm not just saying we hand out everything to people that are users of the system. But I'm telling you as God's people we should be quick to compassion not caring why or how they got into the situation. We just need to meet the need at the moment. And especially when it comes to kids, it's typically of no fault of their own. And we are compelled to minister 
to them. That's what Jesus did. He was willing to put his life on the line because of compassion. Can I share one more with you? Luke chapter 7. Let's go to Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus and his disciples are approaching a little city called Nain, N-A-I-N. Now, if you're a scholar of Scripture, you've studied the Word and you've known the stories, um, this story is referred to as the widow of Nain. And so there's a widow in Nain, and she's therefore lost her husband. The Lord is clear throughout all of Scripture that there's three groups of people that His people ought to care for. And they're often grouped together. As you read through uh, God's instructions to His people in the Chronicles, as you read through the Psalms, as you see Jesus active in the New Testament, there's three groups of people, and they are widows, and they are orphans, and they are what they call strangers. Today, we might call them refugees or uh, aliens. But those three groups of people, Jesus said, my people should care for. Now, in our society in 21st century America, uh, we've allowed our government to take care of most of those people. That's why we are working with DCS to take care of children because DCS has taken over caring for children in crisis. Well, who did the Lord tell to do that? He told his people to do that. You know, the state, the reason sometimes they struggle is because they're never called to it. Governor Haslam himself recently said, the state is good at fixing potholes. We are not good at fixing hearts. And he's called for the people of faith to come alongside and help take care of the 8,000 children in the foster care system in this state. 8,000 of them. There's a couple of thousand of them ready for adoption. There's 3,200 Tennessee Baptist churches, just Tennessee Baptist churches. 3,200 churches, a couple of thousand kids. Why are they waiting for a home? Amen. Compassion will cause us to open our homes. Compassion compelled me and my wife to turn a storage room into a bedroom to take in a 17-year-old boy that had a terrible living situation. It's just stuff like that that we do as God's people. That's who he's called us to take care of. But we're to minister to the widows. Now I know today that widows sometimes have life insurance or retirement or pension, some things. There's some kind of provision. But in Jesus' day, if you were a widow, you were dependent on your children to take care of your necessities, of a place where you live, of food on your table. Some of those widows were resourceful and were uh, made some material and, and dyed some things in colors and things like that. But by and large, you were at the mercy of your own children. Well, now her only son has died. And she's in a mess. And Jesus and his disciples are approaching the city of Nain, the gates of the city, and they see a funeral procession going on. And there's some men carrying a casket with this son in it, this widow's only son. And they're weeping, as you would imagine. They're following this casket as they take him outside the city gates to bury him. And Jesus sees this scene in Luke chapter 7. And the Bible says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do 
not weep. Those are interesting words at an interesting time in my, in my mind. If there's ever a time a person ought to be able to cry, wouldn't it be at a funeral? You know, as a pastor, I would never, ever, when I go to the home of a family that's just lost somebody, or I'm preaching a funeral, and I'm at the grave, I'm at the casket standing there in the front of the church, or I'm at the graveside, and we're lowering that casket into the ground, they're about to cover that up. I never say, don't cry. I mean, that'd be foolish for me to say, don't cry. It's, it's all right to cry. My wife and I, buried our second child. He was born early and lived 11 hours. His name was Austin. And I set his little casket down in a hole in the ground. I'm telling you, I've never wept so much in my life. And if anybody told me not to cry, I think I'd have punched him in the face. But Jesus comes to this funeral procession and says this mama, don't cry. And then the Bible tells us that he touched the casket and the dead man set up. Now, he better be glad I wasn't one of the pallbearers because <laughs> I'd probably drop my corner and we'd have a death all over again. And then the Bible says that the Lord gave him back to his mother. Jesus crashed every funeral he ever went to. You remember Lazarus? And even Jesus wept then. And he calls him, Lazarus, come forth. Crashed the funeral. Four days late, but crashed the funeral. Crashed his own funeral. Rose from the dead. <laughs> but we know that Jesus didn't raise for everybody that died from the dead. But in this moment, when Jesus' heart was moved with compassion, he did the only thing that would solve the problem. And that was gives this woman back her son. I was on the interstate just, uh, I guess it's a month, six weeks ago. I had a prayer breakfast in Portland and I was driving to Brentwood to get to my office so I was a little bit later than I wanted to be. It was one of those cold days this winter. I know you don't think we've had any, but we've had a few. Um, and so there's, I get on the interstate at exit 112 coming south, and there's a SUV pulled over, a flat tire, a lady standing out beside of it. Nobody else had stopped. I got 50 miles to go to Brentwood. I'm late already. I'm hammered down. I only run 77 miles an hour. If any of you are state troopers, you know, you just wave at me at 77. <laughs> so I'm going down, and the Lord says, man, you should stop and help her. And I'm like, Lord, I'm not even a mechanic, you know. This is a new car I'm driving that I got from the children's home because we run all over the state, so they provide me a car. I don't even know where the jack's at in the thing. And so the Lord says, she needs help. And I'm sensing this in my spirit, and I thought, man, this is crazy. So I get off at exit 112. And I tell the Lord, if nobody stopped by the time I go back to 117 and get back on and come back, if nobody's there, I'll stop. Nobody was there. So I pull over. And I said, looks like you got a problem. She said, yes. And, and she starts to cry. 
Now I'm like, oh man, I don't need a crying, you know. I said, it's okay, it's just a tire. You know, it's just a tire. I want to see if I can help you get going. It's not the tire. I'm supposed to be in Nashville, take a test. I paid $300 to take it, and I'm not going to make it, and I'm going to lose that money. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry about that, but, you know, the good news is you're alive, and we're going to get your car rolling. And Well, I cannot find her jack in this truck for nothing. We've pulled up seats in the back. We found all kinds of Cheerios and stuff when her kids had put in there. Suckers stuck in the carpet. But man, there's, I can't find a jack. And so I'm pulling on panels, you know, and I, I pull one panel out and it's just a little first aid thing. And, and I'm just afraid to pull on stuff that I might break and it's not my car. And I'm like, well, let me see if my jack will I don't even know where my jack I had to get my book to see where the jack was. And it's underneath a speaker in the back end in a little compartment. I don't even have it put back in there yet because I can't get it all back together. And so I'm, I'm pulling that out and I'm thinking, well, maybe this will work. Well, the lug wrench actually fit her lug nuts. I'm like, man, that's a miracle in itself. The Lord is good. And so I loosen that tire up and I jack that thing up with my jack and we pull that tire off. Well, her truck has got the jack underneath and it's got that hole with a key and you pull that thing out and you got to have that long rod sticking there and trunk that thing down. I don't have one of those things. So I can't get her spare out. I'm like, well, I said, well, um, you want me to take this thing to Portland and get it fixed and bring it back? You know, I'll do it as fast as I can, but I'll, I'll do it. So we're trying to figure out what we're going to do with this crazy thing. She finally tells me, if she had told me this first, it would have been a lot easier. She finally tells me that, you know, she's talking to her husband on the phone. He used to have to come from Nashville. And, and I'm just trying to think, you know, I'm, I'm freezing. My hands are cold. My, I couldn't hardly get, everything was just hard that day. And uh, so she said, you know, I, I've got till 9.15. I can be there at 9.15 and take that test. Well, it's, eight, it's just now 8.30. For 20 minutes, I've been figuring this thing out. If she told me that earlier, I said, leave your truck. Come on. Um, so I told her, I said, well, listen, we're in a, we're in a bind here because I can't get your, your spare out. You know, just, I just can't do it. I said, so here's what I want to do, and I'm going to tell you right now, you ought not do it. You ought not do it. But I can get you to Nashville. But you call your husband, and you ask him if it's okay if you ride with me to Nashville, and I'll do my dead level best to get you to Nolensville Road within 45 minutes so you can take that test. So that's what she did. And I'm like, oh man, because I get nervous. Like, so we have a rule even. The reason Alyssa and I met down here today is that we don't ride places uh, with a person of the opposite sex unless we have a third person with us. And um, so I'm like, oh, I got this woman in my car. I got to tell my wife. That's why there's blonde hair in here, honey. You know, it's all kinds of stuff in here, you know. And so her, her husband's coming back. He's on the road to get there. And, and so I'm just like, I'm, I'm, just, I'm hammered down. I'm going faster than 77. Because she's got, if, if she's 916, she's, she's out. She don't get to take that test. And the test was to allow her to ride in the helicopter, the medical helicopter at Vanderbilt. She was a nurse, but she had to take this test because of the pressure and the air and all the medications. She had to figure out, she had to prove she knew all that stuff. So, man, I am ripping down there. Her husband sends us a picture by way of text on the way there. You know what the picture of was? Her jack. Because <laughs> I was convinced, you don't have a jack in this thing. I don't think I have a jack. He sends a picture of the jack. I drop her off at this place in 
off of Nolensville Road at 914. And I said, Lord, help her. I think her name was Wendy. Help her do well on this test. My jack's still under her car. You know, I left my jack. It's still jacked up. So my wife meets her the next day, gets my jack. Her husband calls me that night. He says, man, I just want to thank you so much for helping my wife out today. He said, the good news is she passed her test. I said, praise the Lord. <laughs> she was worried about me being late to work. Alyssa, I didn't tell her nobody's going to fuss at me for being late to work because I'm kind of the boss over there. I didn't want to say I'm the boss. It doesn't matter. So I said, oh, it's okay, it's okay. Oh, you're going to be late for us. It's okay, it's okay. Compassion. I missed it at first. Drove by her. I drove by her. But when you sense the Spirit of God prompting your heart to respond to someone in need, I just want to get better at responding quicker. You know, of, of knowing. This is the Lord. I don't help everybody that's on the side of the road. I don't. I'm not the one to stop. But when a lady's there by herself, I'm thinking, man, anybody can stop, you know. When you're sensing the Lord prompting you to hand that person a little cash or to go mow that person's yard for them or to take them some food after the funeral or to whatever it might be. When you're sensing the Lord prompting your heart to respond, we need to respond quickly. I'm really trying to get better, especially when you preach something like this because here's what's going to happen. <laughs> I was going to say at least this week, so it might be Sunday. Yes, for me and for you, you're going to have opportunity this week to minister somebody to somebody in the name of Jesus. It may be an encouraging word to the young lady that's checking out your groceries that hasn't yet made eye contact with you, and she just needs to be encouraged. Rather than you thinking, Customer service, they don't even say hi anymore. They don't even look at you. Well, maybe they need to be a little encouraged. Maybe you need to initiate the conversation. Maybe it's someone on the side of the road that could use your help. Maybe it's somebody who needs a little gas so they can get a little further down the road. Maybe it's somebody who's hungry and they just need a little money to buy one meal as they drive through town. I don't know, but we'll have opportunity to show compassion. And we're God's people. And we ought to err on the side of compassion. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for being a compassionate God, a good, good Father. Lord, we are compelled to follow your example and be people of compassion. I thank you, Lord, for Wales Baptist Church and for their, for their pastors and their leadership and for the compassion they show as they do ministry literally around the globe. I thank you for their compassion for children, evident because of the number of kids in this place. What a beautiful sight. And I pray, Lord, you'd continue to bless their ministry, thwart the plans of the enemy that would slow them down or to cause division among their fellowship or disunity of any kind. May your spirit prevail as they continue to charge the, the gates of hell with the gospel of Jesus. And Lord, help me to continue to learn to be a better person of compassion. May my heart be tender and quick to respond to people around me in need. Lord, today I know that you 
stayed on the cross because of compassion. My sins have been dealt with because you did that. The sins of everybody on this planet will turn to you in faith. They've been dealt with because of your compassion. May we all know we've been touched by the Master and we've been made clean. So Lord, if there's anybody here today that just needs to know you, that you've been speaking to their heart, you've been drawing them, convicting them of sin, I pray, Lord, today they would turn and say yes to you and your way. Lord, as you speak to our hearts and as you prompt us to respond to this message and to being the people you've called us to be in our community, I pray, oh God, that you'd speak clearly so that we might not be mistaken that you're speaking and therefore we will extend a heart and a hand out of compassion. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.